Don't they end up getting married? Uh, spoiler warning. You should put that at the beginning before the intro music. Spoiler warning. I'm going to put there with the they get married part. The episode will start with don't they get married? Uh, spoiler warning. Yeah. Welcome to RequestCast, the request-based podcast. I'm Lewis Powell. And I'm Ben Heaton. And today's request comes from Nigel. I'd like to hear a Terror Island retrospective podcast. Well, Nigel, buckle in, because that's what you're about to hear. First of all, some context for our listeners who might not know what Terror Island is. Terror Island is a webcomic that Lewis and I made for two or three years, maybe? How long did that run? It was, uh, I think, three years. Sounds about right. The idea for Terror Island began when Ben and I were making fake versions of comic strips for... Those for the Starslip Crisis forum, right? Yeah, we were goofing around on the forum, making some fake fan strips for that. And I was excited and gung-ho about doing more. And Ben said, what if instead... We made an actual comic. And I thought... What on earth would our comic be about, Ben? And also neither of us has any artistic skill. But we did not let that stop us. I'd done some photocomics prior to this. I loved it at the time. Yeah, my original photocomic had some material that could have been the basis of something good, I think. But I really liked it at the time, and I feel like it did a lot of work helping us set the tone for Terror Island as well. Oh yeah, it was a good proof of concept for the idea that I could in fact take photographs and turn them into sequential art online. <laughs> We spent a while discussing what we would be taking pictures of, well, what I would be taking pictures of. Yeah, it was clear from the get-go that I would not be doing any of the artwork, although I did at one point make a piece of artwork for the strip, and that was kind of fun. Yeah, anyway, we settled on using game pieces for it, like one of the main characters was a rook from chess. Well, the character wasn't a rook, we just used a rook to represent the character. It's not like he was going around talking about castling. I feel like if there was one thing about the comic that people had the most difficulty at least discussing straightforwardly, it was the idea that the cast of the comic, the actors, were the pieces from games, but the characters were not in any way related to the game pieces. Just like if I were in a production of Hamlet, nobody would think I had to be from Denmark. So, if I remember correctly, Ben, you had the idea for the first strip entirely scripted before we started. Yeah, I had that in some text file of a bunch of random ideas. Like, I had written out dialogue for this dispute between roommates over who needed to get the groceries, but I'd never done anything with it, and if I remember correctly, early on, I didn't think that the idea had enough staying power. I didn't think we would be able to make a full webcomic just based on that. Well, we may or may not have proved that wrong. I guess we were able to make a full webcomic based principally around that plot conceit. Though by, by the end, we were kind of straying a ways away from the actual grocery-related disputing. Right, I don't think we could have gone, like, five years with a grocery dispute webcomic. <sighs> I think we could have. I think we could have, but would have been bad. I don't know. <laughs> I think if we had kept going the way we were going, it would have gotten bad. I feel like I was not as thrilled with where we were at the end. There was, like, a very nice sweet spot the beginning through almost the end. So that's not really a sweet spot. That's a sweet most of it. And then there was a point where we were getting fatigued writing it, and I feel like quality took a hit as a result. And we can get more into that later, but I wish to explain the central conflict more. The comic was about Sid and Steven, who are two roommates who disagree about who should go get more groceries. They can't decide whose turn it is to do that. And they come up with all sorts of wacky schemes to try and trick each other into buying groceries. That, that is an accurate description of the core concept of the comic. And they have a number of friends, principally York, Liln, and Aorist. And Jame. And Jame. Although Jame wasn't their friend at the outset, they didn't meet him until after the comic started. He did end up being a pretty major part of it. Yes. So anyway, they try and get their friends in on the schemes. I feel like right now we are maybe as underselling the comic as we possibly could. Yeah, it wasn't really just about groceries. It was basically an opportunity for us to come up with all sorts of bizarre ideas. We did some world building as it went on. Yeah. Like they lived in Geography City, California. At one point, Stephen runs for czar of Geography City and gets elected. Even though Czar is not an elected position. So there's a few things that I would say were running themes, or not themes, but mo not motifs. Tropes? No, that's not right either. I don't know, they're all mentioned on the TV Tropes page for our comic, which 
like adventure vexillographer. <laughs> yeah. So there are a few recurring elements of the comic. Elements, a good vague word for this, that I feel like are nice examples of what was going on with the comic above and beyond the mere plot layer. For example, whenever there was a flashback scene, because of a thing that we had done in the very first comic, we decided for all times to have a very stilted, archaic way for people to talk in flashbacks. With heavy alliteration. With the explanation that it was the past, so people talked funny back then. Even if it was mere moments into the past. I really liked doing those. They took forever to write, though. <laughs> they did. Oh, they were such a pain. Yeah, we would argue about the dialogue. Like, you would propose a word that fit into the alliteration scheme for a line we needed, and I would reject it because the etymology wasn't Germanic enough. Yeah. Oh, man, you had these weird linguistic intuitions about what was going on with those, where you were like... No, 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 they need to be like more, I guess, Germanic words. And I was like, really? Because I feel like Latinates would be more of like a stilted, archaic way of talking, but... No, because we were going for sort of an Anglo-Saxon tradition there of alliterative poetry. <laughs> were we? Is that what we were doing? Kind of. <laughs> I, it, <laughs> not poetry exactly, but... Yeah, so... The other things that I feel like emerged as like core elements of the world that they were in include Center of the Earth University, Moon Campus. Right, that started as some just offhand joke, and then we had a whole big storyline with them going to the moon for a reunion at Center of the Earth University. I think the basic idea for that started because I always find it, I don't know if amusing is quite the right word, like when people talk about the University of Miami at Ohio, I'm always like, but Miami's not in Ohio, part of my mind. Like, I know that that's not how the naming always works, but that's where we came up with the idea for putting Center of the Earth University's campus on the moon. <laughs> the moon storyline, I think, was the best of our long-form story arcs. Yeah, it beats the demon storyline. The multiple demon storylines. I like to think of it as one discontinuous demon storyline. No, I think my favorite thing that came out of the moon storyline was, uh... Ned? Yeah, Ned Q Sorcerer, DDS. Yeah, his superpower was making people know that he was a dentist. Not think he was a dentist, know that he was a dentist. That's right, he had epistemic superpowers. This was despite him not being a dentist. Did we decide he wasn't a dentist? Didn't he just have this power because of some sort of epistemology accident? Yeah, but, I mean, maybe part of it was that he's also a dentist. He's a dentist to the extent that people being able to know he's a dentist entails that. I'm not sure he was a dentist in the sense of knowing things about teeth. <laughs> he didn't have a dental practice. Right. If that sort of distinction sounds interesting to you, you would like Terror Island. <laughs> Also, if you are uh, find yourself attracted to comics where none of the characters have faces because you find human emotions too difficult to discern from a face, then Terror Island might be good for you. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the best way to sell it. Oh, Omicron had a face. <laughs> oh yeah, Ben's cat was one of the characters in the comic. It was... Yeah, and let me tell you, that cat was surprisingly good at acting. Early on it took some work, but eventually he got the idea that when I had some game pieces around him and I was pointing a camera at him, he knew what was going on. He even ad-libbed sometimes in ways that made it into the comic. I feel like when you add the bit about ad-libbing, you subtract any of the element of what you were claiming when you said that Ray was behaving well. No, but his ad-libbing was perfectly in character, though. <laughs> to some extent, that's because we wrote Omicron with him in mind. Yeah, that's right. We knew he was going to be the one cast for the role. Yeah. So, just a quick cast rundown. The main characters are Sid and Steven. Sid was played by Professor Plum and Steven by a rook. Do you know if it was King's Rook or Queen's Rook? I don't know. When you have the chess set with all the pieces in there, they're just jumbled up. You don't have separate right. compartments for the King's Rook and Queen's Rook. And then Liln, L-I-L-N, who was a professional jeweler and a friend of theirs. She's probably one of the closest things we had to a voice of reason. Yeah, her or Jame. But Jame was too busy being the target of all of the japery to be a good voice of reason. Right, Liln was more the voice of reason who actually comes out fairly well from it. Yeah. Oh, and Liln was played by a foam puzzle piece from something. It was one of those things where you have six foam squares with knobbly bits on the edges and you try to fit them together to form a cube. So we'll call it foam puzzle game. York was the thimble from Monopoly. He owned a gaming store and... Yeah, he was a successful entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, he was the one who actually attended the Moon University. Center of the Earth University. Wasn't Mooniversity their rival school? Mooniversity State University, yeah. Right. I don't think there was a just straightforward, like, University of the Moon. 
No, that that doesn't sound like something we would do. <laughs> no. Then Lilm's boyfriend, Jim, was played by... A blue tiddlywink. <laughs> yeah. That actually caused some problems to photograph. The lighting had to be pretty careful. So he was a bit of a prima donna, you're suggesting? I'm saying if there's too much reflection off of him, it looked kind of weird. Fair enough. Then, um, Aorist. I should say, a lot of these names were Ben's suggestions. In general, the further they are from actual names, the more likely they were suggested by Ben. With one exception, though, I think. I think I suggested First Folio's name. Yeah, you did. Because <laughs> her parents loved Shakespeare. <laughs> so they named her First Folio, yes. Wasn't that the punchline of the stripper she was introduced? Like, she says, well, my parents were big Shakespeare fans. and they, Yeah, people guessed Ophelia or Juliet, yeah. And the reveal is... Yeah, first folio. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about strips where that's the sort of punchline, because on rereading, you already know oh, that's first folio, so it doesn't really feel like a joke. I mean, sure. Though Peanuts did that with Woodstock originally, so right. you know, we have precedent. So that's the core cast, I think, is those one, two, three, four, seven characters. Arist was sort of the wacky one, right? They are all wacky, but if you do a relative scale and you say who's the wackiest of them, then Aorist was the wacky one. And he was played by a green ice house pyramid. I don't know if we mentioned that. Yeah, and First Folio was played by, what's the Trivial Pursuit meets Pictionary meets Clay? Uh, cranium, I think. She She's a cranium piece? Yeah, cranium piece, for those of you who don't know, which may be many of you who have played cranium, because it's not a game where you care about the game pieces much. The pieces look like a cube with a sphere on top. Yep, that is an apt description. And she actually was sort of humanoid looking because of that. I mean, a lot of them have that sort of basic biped looking structure. Yeah. Yeah, she looks more like an abstract human than any of the other pieces, I guess. Like she's closer to a Lego person shape or the Duplo people that are basically a sphere on top of a cube. Yeah, but we never used anything as recognizably human as a Duplo piece. Yeah, so the strip started off pretty tightly focused around these grocery schemes, and that lasted for... When's the first point where we deviate from the grocery schemes? Might have been the moon storyline. No, that was actually, on some level, it was motivated by a grocery scheme. Oh uh, yeah, they stowed away as some sort of trick to... What was it? Stephen was going to hide something of Sid's on the moon and refused to tell him where it was until Sid got groceries? Something like that. Yeah. I think the main thing I learned about Ben over the course of making this comic with him is the sheer volume of tiny furniture and props that he owns. You'd be amazed how often the plot would call for like a miniature box of cereal and Ben would be like, oh, I have one of those. It is to scale for our characters. Or a miniature like BMX scooter. <laughs> you can find a lot of that stuff at garage sales and thrift stores. Yeah, I think a lot of people have seen them at those and then not purchased them because they have no use for those. Oh, early on we had that Spelling Bee storyline. That wasn't directly grocery-related, was it? No, it was! The Spelling Bee was introduced by uh, York as a mechanism for determining who got a coupon to buy groceries. Oh, that's right. So that was a third character stepping in to try and fix this problem for them. But it had almost ended immediately before the Spelling Bee because one of them fell for the Sphinx ruse. And then when York said he could solve everything, the other one let the first one know that the Sphinx thing was a ruse. I don't remember the Sphinx thing. You know, I get the feeling that some of our Terra Island fans who are listening to this are going to know way more about what we're talking about than we do and may have many corrections for us. Yeah. So it's strip 21 is the strip in question. I'll just read you the relevant dialogue, which is all of it. <laughs> okay. So in, in Strip 20, before Strip 21, Sid had already explained his plan to trick Stephen into thinking that there was a Sphinx, and Stephen hates riddles. Right. I believe at one point we used the phrase, his hatred of riddles is legendary. <laughs> so Stephen asks, guys, I think we may have a problem. How common are Sphinxes around here? And York says, about average, I guess. <laughs> Stephen says, uh-oh, I guess that means I'll have to go get some groceries. And then this is clearly about to be victory for Sid, but Sid says, oh, is this because of that encyclopedia thing? That isn't real. I forged it to fool you. Oh, that's right. He had put something on Wikipedia about needing groceries to ward off sphinxes. Yes. So that you didn't have to answer their riddles. Right. Wow. This was already insanely convoluted by Strip 21. It's not that many strips to establish these layers of character motivations and confusion of motivations. I won't spoil the end of the strip, but it leads into the Spelling Bee plotline. The Spelling Bee was one of the parts that 
reused some ideas I had had from before we started Terror Island. And I think some of the Spelling Bee material was in the same text file where I'd had the dialogue for Strip 1. It was something that I'd been planning on using for Foms, my first photo comic that never ended up going in there. Man, there are some elements that I was noticing were supposed to make their way into this comic that we never got around to. Like what? Like, so First Folio, for us, had a complicated backstory. We hinted at that. Where she was a detective seeking out descendants of Odin. I I think we established that. I don't know if we ever made it clear, like, why she was doing that. Yeah, but... We just occasionally had her be overly curious about things that sounded vaguely Odin-ish. Yeah, when she first meets their cat, Omicron, she asks if by any chance he was sired by a mysterious one-eyed wanderer, something like that. Yeah. Was it canon that Omicron was descendant? from Odin? It was not. You never called canon on that. <laughs> yeah, I remember I kept wanting to introduce Odin into the strip directly as a character, and you kept vetoing that. I did. I did. It seemed like it oddly wouldn't fit the well-established and clear-cut tone of our universe. Honestly, it probably wouldn't. None of the representations of Odin I had fit our visual style. Yeah. Oh, the spelling bees also when we started doing jokes that were mostly us laughing at potential readers of the strip. Was it? Yeah. Not in a mean way, more like... Like what sort of? So we had one character is asked to spell the word Ayufjeme, I-U-F-J-E-M-E. Uh, but it's revealed in the final panel that the F in that word is silent. Uh, yes, they spell it wrong because of that. Yeah, the characters spell it wrong because of that, but the reader would just be confused as to why the guess didn't contain the F there. I feel like that's a joke at the expense of our readers to some extent. I guess. I'm not sure it's really at their expense, it's just... (laughs) Sorry, I was just rereading. When James gets that word, he says, what's the language of origin? And York says, none. Right, it's not from language. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I feel like I might be the most entertained by this comic of anyone. I don't know. I really liked it. We should have some sort of thing where our uh, audience to the podcast writes in and tells us which of us is the bigger fan. Yeah, honestly, they might know more than we would. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. We have these crazy, like, for those of you who don't know about the TV Tropes website, it's slightly inaccurately named. It has a lot of stuff about tropes that recur in television programs, but also all manner of fiction and media. And I suspect that rather than having a huge fan base who each made slight contributions, that we have like two stalker level fans who added every single thing we did in the strip to the relevant part of the TV Tropes website and has like a really fleshed out, like probably better than our retrospective here would be if you go to the TV Tropes (laughs) site for our comic, which neither Ben nor I have done anything to except look at. I don't think we even corrected errors when we found them. I don't think I've ever added TV tropes at all. Yeah, it seems not more pointless than Wikipedia, because I feel like it's a more useful resource in some ways, but... I feel like adding it is more useful than adding Wikipedia, because when you add Wikipedia, useful content you add is more likely to be removed than useful content you add to TV tropes. Yes, that's true. Oh! (laughs) Haha! I remember what's best about the Spelling Bee episode is we introduced what I think is probably hands down my favorite running joke from the entirety of the strip, which is the characters oh. being deliberately obtuse about the phrase sour grapes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, wow, you must be eating some sour grapes. How did the first one go? Uh, the initial one is, would you like some ham to go with those sour grapes? <laughs> <laughs> Why did we pick ham? Uh, Because it, I think, didn't sound like it should go with sour grapes. (laughs) I mean, not that anything really sounds like it goes with sour grapes. You know, like in the fable. Uh, Yeah, the fable where the fox ate some sour grapes and complained about it. And then James tries to correct them. That's not what happened. He didn't eat them. He just said they were sour. Um, James, it's fiction. Of course he didn't actually eat the grapes. (laughs) Man, that comic right there. That If we had just created that, Dianu, it would have been enough. And that strip also had people being a jerk to Jame, which is pretty nice. Yeah, we were really mean to Jame. It's a good thing he's not a real person. I think he's one of my favorite characters from it. Yeah, he had a restaurant. Yeah, famous James. I should mention, the idea with his name was, it's like James, but singular, because there's only one of him. (laughs) I hope people other than me enjoy listening to Ben and I talk about the various jokes that we put into the comic. We should get into the demon storyline, because that's the part I have probably the most mixed feelings about in early Terror Island. Okay, because you didn't have the fisheye lens yet, 
or... No, no, I had the fisheye lens. Actually, that's one of the parts I liked. Whenever we had a shot where there was a demon on panel, I would use a fisheye lens with the fisheye effect kind of centered on the demon. I like that sort of visual shorthand for, hey, there's a demon here. Wait, before we get to demons, just to go chronologically, I'm sort of flipping through the comics a little bit to see what happened. We introduced Bizarro, Sid, and Steven, and Aorist earlier. Yeah, those weren't actual characters, though. Well, Bizarro Aorist kind of was. But this is just because maybe the best thing from Golden Age comics ever is the Bizarro world with the Bizarro character. Because they didn't really understand how to do opposites, like, in a consistent way. So sometimes they decide that the opposite of what he's going to do, like, he'll say goodbye at the beginning of a conversation instead of saying hello at the beginning of a conversation. And sometimes it would be something like taking an expression literally, like saying the drinks are on the house and going up to the roof and pouring drinks on it. Because normally we don't mean that literally, (laughs) but in this case we do, I guess. And then other times it would just be like, take something that's wacky and different and likely dangerous. For instance, they put live bombs in birthday cakes. (laughs) Because that's the opposite of what we do, which is not put bombs in birthday cakes. So we had a strip where, uh, what was it, Steven dresses up as Bizarro Steven to try to convince Sid that he is Bizarro Sid. And thus needs to buy groceries. But Sid sees through it because he realizes that that morning he read a newspaper instead of the opposite, which would be the newspaper exploding. <laughs> okay, so the demon plotline. Yeah, we had a plotline where James got possessed by a demon somehow, I forget the setup. But then we had this long storyline about the other guys trying to figure out a way to exercise the demon and get Jane back to normal. Yeah, that's probably one of our first sort of extended plot lines. Was that before the moon plot line? Let's see, we get to Czar. The Czar plot line, the waiter. I think it must be later. Alright, well, we don't need to cover this all in order. Yeah. <laughs> I just got to the Halloween strip where Jame dresses up as a Jame burger and fries. <laughs> That was a fun one to make. For Lilm, didn't I make some sort of toga out of tissue paper or something? Yeah, we decided James had costume blindness oh, yeah. and was unable to tell what costumes were. <laughs> Keep in mind, James was meant to be sort of the least wacky one of them, but we still ended up doing things like that with him. Like he would look at a costume that was someone in toga and think they were dressed as a cat. Right. So Gunpowder got sentenced to be James' stunt double. Isn't that much later? No. He first got sentenced in Strip 63. Really? Which is before the... uh... I guess I'd assume that Gunpowder was kind of a later addition to the cast. I don't remember when we gave him the name Gunpowder Jackson MD. That was a good name. It's a good name. Yeah, we had an early storyline where after Steven had become Czar, he was sentencing a never-before-seen character for some crime he'd done and sentenced him to work as James' bodyguard. I think he was breaking the law of James. Right, the law of James. Which the waiter, waiter man, had made up. Oh, this is just immediately before the uh, demon plotline. Really? Yeah, because James went to go avoid gunpowder, and that is why he walked into the room in the middle of... Of Sid's demon summoning, right. And so Sid finished the summoning by saying James instead of whatever he had meant to say. Uh, so you said you felt conflicted? Right, and I like that setup, but I feel like we didn't do enough with it. We then just had a bunch of kind of boring plot moving along strips with them eventually doing this whole ritual to free the demon. He was blighting weeds instead of crops. Oh, yeah, that was good. He was like threatening Aorus, saying he blighted his crops, but Aorus didn't have crops. He just had weeds in his lawn, and he was glad that the demon had blighted them. Yeah, no, I remember fans, what, like, the four fans that we had who were serious about the strip at the time. It was more than that. Well, sure. We're very disturbed when we had the demon kill Aorus. <sighs> That's right. Because the demon had been built up as a pretty thoroughly unpowerful and unmenacing character. And then he just kills Aorus, the fan favorite character at the time. Yeah, and our favorite character too. Oh, yeah. That was, that was, <laughs> we took one for the team there. Which of us was it who came up with the idea of killing off Aorus? I think one of us came up with it as a joke and the other one came up with it as taking it seriously. Yeah. I don't remember which was which. If you already had the broken ice house piece, then you probably came up with the idea. I did not. I had to break it for that and it was pretty hard. That ended up being done with, I think, some sort of jeweler's tools I had around. I forget exactly what the process was. I don't have crops. I have weeds. Did you blight my weeds? Yes. Oh, thanks. And there's a bit in there where the demon is, like, offering Sid and Steven groceries in return for their souls, and they refuse because that would count as buying groceries, and that's the only reason for refusing the deal. 
Yeah, he also tried to sink James' restaurant by serving bad foods, but then among the wackiest characters, the Unity walks in and is very happy, and so they pay lots of money. James' restaurant does better. For our listeners, what we're doing is subverting expectations of what a malevolent demon would do. That's where the humor resides. He was kind of malevolent but incompetent at it. Yeah. Oh, we also decided to make it canonical that buying toothpaste is not buying groceries, which is true. I think that's the right category. I mean, I agree with that, but that was a weird choice to put into the comic. The characters in the strip were very surprised to learn that Sid and Steven were okay buying toothpaste. Oh! And then in the middle of this demon plot line is when they suggest the guy who owns the grocery store, which is where they go to buy the toothpaste, should become a supervillain. Right, he was <laughs> talking to them about how business hadn't been so good lately or something, and they just suggest be a supervillain. And he responds that he doesn't have any superpowers, but they point out that Batman doesn't have superpowers. And so from this day forward, he will be known as the Green Grocer. <laughs> You know, I'd always wanted to do a storyline where we introduced a new supervillain taking up his mantle and calling himself the Hobgrocer. <laughs> or the Greengrocer, parentheses, 1-1, one, one, parentheses. You apparently came up with that idea for a supervillain back in June of the year we started it. Yeah, a lot of our ideas for the strip we came up with long before they actually went into the strip. But for anybody who's listening, if you're near a computer, I would go to terrorisland.net and check out strip 80, which is a good example of the insane amount of miniature props that Ben owns. That's when you had the uh, grocery store set up with like eight miniature boxes of cereal and small miniature canned goods and miniature shelving units and a miniature cash register. Like, you had a miniature cash register and tiny coins. Like, tiny, tiny coins. These weren't all tiny things that I owned myself. Some were from people I knew, some were from my parents. Like not You even own a miniature toothpaste tube. I think my having a miniature toothpaste tube was what inspired us to make toothpaste a central part of the demon banishing ritual. That's right. Because I can't see any other reason why we would decide that. It might have fit the rhyming scheme that we needed for the demon banishing song. I don't think the ritual part was really well thought out. It was basically just a case of some characters saying, hey, here's the ritual we need to do, and then a few strips of them doing exactly that, and then the demon's gone. Yeah. I think TV Trope said that we were subverting some trope by doing that, but I think it was just lazy writing. <laughs> That's the best thing about TV Tropes. Whenever anything works in our comic, we're utilizing a trope, and whenever anything didn't work, we were subverting a trope. Yeah. They were like, this panel is an instance of anti-humor, because instead of a funny joke at the end, it's not a funny <laughs> joke. To be fair, sometimes that was deliberate. Yes. Oh man, my favorite was the time where we had one of the characters put part of the final line in quotes so that it sounded like it was supposed to be a pun, but there was literally no pun there at all. Right, and the title text for that was something like, get it? Yes. Now is as good a time as any to mention that our comic also developed a weird level of reputation for not using foul language. And I think that's a fair reputation for it to have, since we didn't use foul language. No, it was. We didn't use foul language. Unlike this podcast where you pointed out that I swear approximately once per episode, we would have characters yell, what the hey, instead of what the hell. Well, that's because what the hay is much funnier. It is. I think that was our original reason for that. And then some people pointed out in the forums that it was nice that it was a pretty family-friendly comic. And so we went with that. Because, you know, there should be good family-friendly comics out there. There should. Oh, and then we decided to start making use of characterization we had done. Like the fact that Sid was a uh, freelance writer and Stephen was a flag designer. Right, a vexillographer. Yeah. I'm guessing you said flag designer because you want listeners to know what we mean. Yes. I feel like Ben and I were super entertained by how bad flags designed by amateur vexillographers are. And that was the motivation for making Stephen a vexillographer. Yeah, if you look at some organization of flag designers or vexillologists or whatever, the organization's flag will often not be very good. I think that's an understatement. Often it will be an atrocious, atrociously designed flag. Now, we had the California Vexillography Association in the comic at one point, and the flag we made for them, I think, was pretty good. It was the Californian Federation of Vexillographers. Yeah, it was a flag with a flag on it and also one star. Yeah, and like a red stripe at the bottom to look kind of like the California state flag. Although, I don't know if we know that it's for sure the real flag of the Federation, because that was actually made by Sid to trick Stephen into buying groceries as part of the renewal process. Oh, right. The only time we saw it was on the fake letter that that Sid had sent out pretending to be the CFV. Yeah. 
See, I, I'd assume that he had just copied their official flag from their website or something. That is a sensible assumption. <laughs> All right. We even wrote a whole comic around the fact that you had tiny dice so that you could make a joke about regular sized dice being, quote, giant novelty dice, end quote. Oh, yes. Right. York is trying to get them to play some RPG with him. York's daily life, the tabletop RPG. I think York quickly became my favorite character, especially when he started replacing random words with the word York. That didn't last long. No, but it was fun while it lasted. We had a storyline where he had decided his shtick was going to be saying his name in sentences the way that the Smurfs do, and everybody hated it. Like, everybody within the comic. I don't think our readers all hated it. The primary character statistics in York's daily life, do you remember what they were? Uh, let's see, origami and charisma, I think, were some of them. I don't remember the others. Origami, spelling bee leadership. <laughs> right. Quality. Quantity. Quantity. And charisma. Right, and the joke there was somebody hears that those are the statistics for York's daily life and says, like, oh, I didn't know you were into origami. And he says, no, that's usually my lowest stat. Yeah. Oh, and then we decided to mock people who are bad at coming up with game systems to do an insanely complicated method of assigning your initial stats. So York rolled a seven, which means that that has to be the standard deviation of his <laughs> stats. He gets 200 points to distribute among them subject to that constraint. <laughs> I still kind of like that idea, and I don't like it enough that if I were designing my own RPG, I would use it. But... Oh man, I changed my mind about what my favorite joke in the comic is. Okay, what is it now? In strip number 89, Lil, while cleaning their apartment for some reason, I'm not sure why, she was, I guess she just found it in their couch. She found the chore contract they made when they first became roommates, which specifies how to handle disputes over who should do particular chores. Right, and so she's excited because she thinks this will end their insane grocery disputes. Yes. The contract says it should be, quote, whoever is more easily tricked into buying groceries, end quote. To which Sid says, really, that changes everything. Liln says, no, it doesn't. And Steven says, well, at least it legitimizes everything. If you are listening right now and you have not read the comic before, I might recommend that you go read the comic before listening to this episode, because we are ruining a lot of the jokes for you. Yeah, comic strips don't work as well when you're just hearing them described to you. So this episode is really aimed at people who have either read Terror Island in the past, or upon hearing this, are reading it and then listening to this. Yeah. So another odd character we had who I don't think we really explained the backstory to at any point was the Unity. We had some plan with that when we introduced the Unity. The Unity was three character tokens. Do you remember what game it was from? No. One was red, one was yellow, one was blue. They all looked kind of vaguely pawn-like. Or like parcheesy pieces or something. Yeah. The three of them were the character the Unity, and the Unity was just supposed to be creepy and weird and obsessed with balance. Now, I remember I would do odd things with the speech bubbles for the Unity. Like, sometimes the tails would be pointing at points in between two of those pieces, or I'd have kind of odd zigzagging lines. Yeah. I feel like there was we were planning to go somewhere with that, and then we got distracted by other things. In early strips, there were some sort of references to the Unity being a deity of some kind, I think. Right. Maybe the Unity was Odin, and you had succeeded in getting me to put Odin in the comic. No, I don't think so. The Unity was more like tripartite god kind of thing. You think it was our commentary on the Doctrine of the Trinity? I'm not sure where we were going with it exactly. I mean, the whole balance obsession came from one line you gave the Unity, hold the ship out beyond the surf and spray, something like that. The Aristotle line. Oh, well that's because it wasn't just an Aristotle line though, it was a reference to Scylla and Charybdis. Oh, that's right. Right, Sid's last name was Byrak, and Sid Byrak spelled backwards was Charybdis. And we later had a character named uh, Ali C.S., which is Scylla backwards. Right, her last name was C.S. because one of her ancestors was a cesium elemental. That's right. We also had a character that only existed once every 100 strips. Oh, Bartleby, yes. Yeah, their third roommate who only exists in strips 100, 200, and 300. Yeah, I guess it is actually all grocery-related up for the first hundred strips, at least. And even into that, that's when we have uh, Sid's fable. The fable was fun. That involved, what, a turtle and a rabbit? No, the wise pig and the turtle. The turtle laughed evilly and refused to get acorns. Ha! I have no redeeming qualities. <laughs> the fable is a kind of thinly disguised allegory about how Sid needed to get the groceries, and Sid had written this because Stephen commissioned it. Was that how it worked? <sighs> yes, that's right. But Sid claimed to switch the meaning using his authorial intent. 
So I remember I had some conventions about where I would take the pictures for this, like anything set at Center of the Earth University, I would take the photos at Stanford. So Stanford was really filling in for Center of the Earth University. Yeah, it was the closest major campus to me at the time. Interestingly, immediately after the plotline we were just discussing is the uh, Center of the Earth University plotline. The Moon storyline was pretty good, and it set up a recurring antagonist, Ned Q. Sorcerer, who we mentioned before. That's right. Sid and Steven make up fake names to try to attend the reunion, and the ridiculous fake names happen to be actual people who were there. <laughs> oh, the best was when you came up with the really convoluted joke about Sid using a Welsh female name instead of his, his own name. Right, Valerie, like, Willen or something. Yeah. You don't look Welsh or female. Then obviously I wouldn't choose that as a fake name. Oh, and then Steven has to give the presentation. Oh, right. Steven is giving a presentation as Ned Q. Sorcerer, and he figures he can just bluff his way through it. But the theme of the presentation is Ned Q. Sorcerer giving accurate details about his own life. Yeah. The audience all calls him out when he gets something wrong. I'm not sure why they were actually there to just hear someone they already know about describe things about himself that they already know. And he gets all the facts wrong. Like, as wrong as possible. Didn't we introduce Sidra and... And Stephanie, yeah. They're dishwashing fight analog characters. Right. Did they ever reappear in the comic after that? Sadly, no. Though, when we were planning to do a reboot of Terror Island as an entirely different type of comic entirely, before we decided to do a podcast... We shouldn't mention that, or people are going to demand that we start a new comic. That's okay. That'd be good for us. Stephanie and Sidra, wacky roommates. Yeah, they were similar to Sid and Steven, but they were arguing over some different chore. Whose turn it was to do the dishes. They had competitive Arbor Day instead of competitive Lent. Wait, I don't think competitive Lent is something that Sid and Steven did. I think that's something you and I did. <laughs> no, I think at one point in the comic, somebody says that the grocery standoff is like Lent only competitive. Ah, okay. But that was a reference to competitive Lent. That's right. It's called Ned Q. Sorcerer Answers Trivia Questions About His Own Life. So while Stephen was giving that presentation about Ned Q. Sorcerer's life, the actual Ned Q. Sorcerer shows up. I don't remember if he's gotten back by this point. Yes, no, he does. Because Stephen has to pretend that bilocation is a feat that he performed. Only the true Ned would bilocate and accuse himself of being a fake. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good bit. We took the idea that the real Ned shows up and the fake Ned uses that as evidence that he's real. That is a quintessential us joke. Let's not describe the entirety of every plotline in detail, though. Let's. Yeah, we probably want to keep this one under two hours. Yeah. James' horrible birthday party when the demon comes back. Yeah, that one started out pretty well, but eventually turned into just a long demon storyline. I liked the set we used for that one. Oh, right, and then he murders Aorist immediately. Right, he murders Aorist at the second demon storyline, not the first. And then we kept Aorist in this mythical domain called The Blue. The Blue, which was set at uh, a San Diego hotel, right? Initially. Like, we were there for Comic-Con, and I had the pieces, and we decided to film the blue strips while we were there. Yeah. Though for some later appearances, I just used other blue carpets. Yeah. Allie's grand relative was not a cesium elemental. What? It was elemental cesium. Huh. Like, inanimate, or how did that work? We didn't flesh that out. I'm really surprised we didn't go with a cesium elemental. Me too. The other two characters we introduced later that we haven't really talked about at all were Blue Teen and Helmet Warthog. Blue Teen was named by a reader, right? Uh, yeah, I think a reader wrote in with a guess about something. Oh, there was a new election for Czar and Aorist's ghost won. Not the ghost of Aorist, but a ghost belonging to Aorist. Right. Yeah, it was just the ghost that Aorist had had around, and now he's the Tsar. Aorist wasn't back. Yeah, everybody thought Aorist was coming back. We were so mean with the Aorist stuff. Yeah, I see what you mean about some of our jokes being at the reader's expense. <laughs> Who was the star-shaped character that Sid fell in love with? Uh, Sue Sidow. Odysseus spelled backwards. Right. Because we were going to do some love triangle bit between Sid, Allie, and Sue, but neither of us were really interested in writing love triangles, so that never really happened. We did try a surprising number of times that Liln and Jame are in the strip. It is because they are on a date, or it is explicitly mentioned that they are dating, and yet I feel like many people read the comic and did not retain that information, and did not appreciate that there was a romance going through the entire plot. Don't they end up getting married? Uh, spoiler warning. 
You should put that at the beginning before the intro music spoiler warning. I'm going to put there with the they get married part. The episode will start with don't they get married? Uh, spoiler warning. Yeah. I think we did enough to sell Lil and James as a couple. Like It's in James' very first appearance. They're on dates all the time. I and mean, we didn't have them kiss or anything, but that's because they're game pieces. And also, James is flat and on the ground, so it would be hard to stage. Yeah. We had a sad debate between York and Stephen with the unity officiating. Right, the debate for Tsar. The unelected position. I think we kept it as canon throughout that Tsar was non-elected position, even while doing these election storylines for it. Yeah. The moon even had Tsar election 07 coverage. I remember early on we had some plan to make horribly inconsistent timing of, like, panels where things that clearly happened, like, earlier that day are referred to later as having been a year ago or something like that. I don't know if we ever did that. I think we did do that sometimes. I remember some people being confused by it. We got a review at one point, or maybe it was just like a blog comment or something. Someone described the strip as being like, reality rotate 45 degrees around every conceivable axis. I think my friend Dennis one time said, you know how some people make jokes and someone will say that works on multiple levels? He said, our humor, yours and mine, just works on the other level, but not the original one. (laughs) That does sound about right. Yeah, I I like that as a description of our humor. At one point, Sid and Steven enter a skating board contest. We tried to consistently call them skating boards instead of skateboards. I don't remember why, but I'm pretty sure it was a good reason. The prize for this contest was buying groceries, so they were both trying to lose. That's right. Steven is going to use a bike instead of a skateboard because he's pretty sure that will get him disqualified. (laughs) All right. And so Sid decides, yeah, well, I'm just going to jump across the river the skating board contest was to jump across a river on a skateboard. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just rereading some of these comics in the Czar storyline, which is going on at the same time as the skating board contest. Steven had a free ice cream for everyone always policy, and York asks how he would pay for it. And Steven's answer is, I won't have to pay for it, it's free. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who voted for Aeor's ghost? He wasn't even running. No one voted for him. Being Tsar isn't an elected <laughs> <Yes>. position. <laughs> uh, Blue Teen. Blue Teen was played by one of those little wooden ghosts that Chris Yates makes. I should mention, Chris Yates of Reprographics was probably a big part of why I made photocomics in the first place. I think his was the first photocomic I really got into reading. Yeah. I don't think I was ever into that many photocomics, but I did like reprographics. Yeah, I think I might have used some other little wooden ghosts of his as, like, extras in a couple scenes. Bluetin was the one that had an actual named role. Listeners, if you're ever at a comic convention that Chris Yates is exhibiting at, go buy some of his ghosts. They're cheap and they're really good to use as props for things, or just have around the house. This podcast is brought to you by Chris Yates and his wooden ghosts. <laughs> Oh, that's right. They have to jump over Skater Bane River. Right. Like the worst possible river name for wanting to skate over it. It can't be too bad, otherwise the sharks wouldn't be able to survive in there. I remember that was a tough one to photograph. There was some rain around that time. So a bunch of the strips were shot during kind of light rain, which made for some difficulties with a few of the props I had to use. Yeah. Plus you had to try and take mid-air photos of things. Oh, yeah. I took a lot of pictures of that and eventually got one or two that showed the piece in flight. Yeah. Ned won because teleporting wasn't explicitly forbidden by the rules. Right, but jumping across and biking across were. That's right. If you jump across, you're disqualified for not using a skateboard. If you bike across, you're disqualified for not using a skateboard. But there's nothing about what happens if you teleport across. (laughs) And then he starts talking about Munitors. Yeah, Ned was the one character who really liked giving villainous rants. Yeah. The Green Grocer never really got into that. It was it was fairly friendly. Right. He had henchmen, though. Florian and Gavriel, I think. Yeah, Florian and Gavriel. I picked the names for them based on looking at the spines of some books that happened to be near me at the time. Gavriel is named after Guy Gavriel K, and Florian is named after Florian Kajori. The uh, expert on the history of mathematical notation. Yeah. At around strip 260 is when we clearly started going in what even for us counts as a weird direction. What happened then? 
That is the first instance of the uh, sepia-toned, silent film-esque thing, where we still had actual dialogue between the characters, in addition to the placard cards with dialogue on them. Oh right, we did that little silent film bit with, uh, who is that, Waiter Man and Lord Terror? No, no, Furniture Store Guy. Oh yeah, Furniture Store Guy. Furniture Store Guy was one of my favorite minor characters. My good sir, do you realize that you are living in my rubbish bin? My good sir, do you realize that you are putting your rubbish in my home? That's the whole punchline! <laughs> I say, what an unexpected development. Oh, and then Gunpowder decided to go back to Target City. Oh, right, Target City was like some nearby city in California, close to Geography City. Why did we name it Target City? Initially, I had had some idea about a political intrigue plotline, where somebody was doing something with some city where Target would be, like, where there would be a Target, and you were like, why don't we call it Target City? And I was like, no, but we're not going to do that. But then we kept the name and ditched the whole actual, like, political plotline. Okay, so we named it Target City because that could have been part of a joke in a storyline we didn't do. <laughs> yeah! That's us. Uh, I remember most of the Target City scenes were shot in D.C. Oh, because that's you'd moved from Palo Alto to D.C. by that point. Actually, this was before then. I had shot them while visiting D.C. I think I moved to D.C. a little bit after the comic ended. Yeah. The last strip, well, not the last strip, but the thing we have up on the front page of TerraIsland.net so that people don't see the last strip when they just go there is shot in D.C. So with Furniture Store Guy, we'd had a few scenes in furniture stores. Doing a furniture store set was pretty easy because if you're looking for small game piece sized things, dollhouse furniture is pretty easy to come by. So I could just take a bunch of random chairs and desks and put them together and then it looks like it's a furniture store. Yeah. So in Target City is when we introduced one of my favorite minor characters, Helmet Warthog, who is basically just supposed to always be saying Werner Herzog things. Yeah. We got the idea for that after I had seen Werner Herzog giving a Q&A at Stanford, and I was really taken by it and described it to you, and we decided that having a character like that would be a great idea. Wasn't he disgusted by the use of the word adventure? Yeah. Yeah, he said things about how the idea had been so bastardized and didn't mean anything. I remember him saying things about how the sun was just a seething ball of hatred that despises each and every one of us. Someone asked him if filming in the jungle had ever been difficult for him, and he said, no, it was pretty easy. I mean, the worst thing was probably this one time that a guy got bitten by a snake and was too far away from base camp to be able to get back there before dying, so he cleverly cut off his leg right there so that he wouldn't die of the snake venom. But aside from that, it's pretty nice. Jungles are fine. <laughs> so Helmet Warthog, we just we want someone who would just say all these over-the-top intense things and I don't think we went that far over the top, honestly. I, I don't think we managed to make him more extreme than the actual Werner Herzog. It's really difficult to do that. Werner Herzog got shot during an interview by an air gun or something and continued the interview. <laughs> yes, it was not a significant bullet. How did Aorist come back to life? Because I know we did bring him back eventually. I'll give you a hint. Do you know what number strip he came back in? Oh, he was brought back by Bartleby. Right. That's right. Even though we had earlier stated in a number of different venues, like in the comic, in our comments on the comic, in the forum, we were very clear that there was absolutely zero way for him to ever come back to life. <laughs> and then Bartleby brought him back to life. Uh, Bartleby was kind of a deus ex machina, but for some reason, it feels to me like having a planned schedule for when he's able to appear and do these things makes that okay. Yeah. He may be a deus ex machina, but he's not going to resolve anything on like strip 380. Oh, and then for some reason around strip 298 is when you made what I thought was the best artistic decision we made and then immediately unmade it because fans didn't like it. Oh, was that the speech bubble borders? Yeah, it looks so much better. Yeah, for like two strips, I decided I would start adding borders to the speech bubbles because prior to that, they'd just been flat white with no real edge to them. So I added these little black borders around them. I, it looked so much better and Everybody hated it. People are signing up on our forums just to say that they found it really off-putting. <laughs> For some reason, we caved to that. A couple strips later, we went back to the old way, and I really think if we had just stuck with it, people have gotten used to it. I use that style for the speech bubbles in Request Comics all the time now, because early Request Comics, the style was all over the place with speech bubbles, so nobody was really attached to a particular bad way of doing it, so nobody complained about me going with a good way. Ben, I just had a realization that I probably should have had 
as we began this podcast, since the request is a Terror Island retrospective, should we go back and redo this entire thing in the stilted, alliterative dialogue style that we use for flashbacks? No, because that would be really slow if we wanted to do it well. That's something that we might be able to write out ahead of time, given a couple months of preparation. <laughs> yeah. And that I would complain about using a word that sounded a little too francophone. Right. So you were dead. I don't see the interest. Death is the most insignificant event that can happen to a man. Whose line do you think that was? Uh, it's gotta be Helmet Warthog. That is correct. Yeah, I think that's one of the better lines we had for him. And what, Eros just agrees to that. Because really, death was just a matter of hanging out in the blue with some voice for a while. Yeah. I hope this is what Nigel wanted us to do, was just talk about the comic and what happens in it. I assume so. I feel like Nigel probably already read the comic, so does not need us to narrate what happened. Well, this is like getting the director's commentary track. Yeah. Oh man, I love these objection clouds. Although, we had comments below the strip, so that's really the commentary track. Oh man, I loved when you decided that your first comment on the first strip should be written from the perspective of like three months in the future. This was the first Terror Island strip we made. It's hard to believe we've come so far since then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, when I had written that, I think I had assumed that the art wouldn't change much because it's photographs, but honestly it really did, and looking back on it, the first strip looks a lot worse than most of the others. Yeah. The characters look incredibly small in a couple strips. The composition is kind of terrible. <laughs> Sorry, I've, I'm updating to my new favorite joke that we did. Okay, what is it now? Strip 305, York is talking to Aorist. And York says, you know, we avenged your death. And then Aorist says, I guess that's good. I don't really remember asking you to avenge me, though. And York goes, oh no, you have amnesia. <laughs> Aorist says, wait, do you remember me asking that? And York goes, oh no, I have amnesia too. <laughs> Just for anybody who thinks, by the way, that I'm, like, bizarrely self-involved for laughing at these jokes, I think a lot of my favorite jokes are actually Ben's suggestions. It's really hard to tell which jokes are mine and which are yours, though, because of the way in which we co-wrote it. Yeah. Like, I think this one might have started with me wanting to do a bit with Aorus not really caring about his death being avenged, and then the amnesia part would have been just some outgrowth of the two of us just tossing ideas back and forth about how to express this. And sometimes we're trying to cut down on the dialogue and I, one of us would just propose a revision of the script where there's just a radically different piece of dialogue there to, to change the size. And then all of a sudden we had a new idea for the strip and it would get, you know, evolved from there. I would say it was true collaboration, except for the art, which was 99.9% .9 you and 0.4% me. There's a little bit of overlap there. <laughs> I didn't do the, the math quite right. Some of the art was collaborative as well. Like, I remember the CFV flag design. I had made a design and you had some revisions for it. Like, I think I had way too much detail on the flag in the flag at first. Yeah. After 300, I feel like there were elements of us just giving up on things. Really? That does feel like about the time that we were both getting less interested in the strip as a whole. Yeah. I'm trying to find the place where we had them just take care. We were going to have them do the whole hero's journey narrative, like man with the hero with a thousand faces style, like eight step process. But we, at some point we gave up on them doing the hero's journey and we just did like the first two steps and then mentioned the other six or whatever. Yeah, that was the joke though. We, oh, hey, there's that threshold to cross and there's our fathers next to it and there's the apotheosis. True. I remember I had a great pun that you vetoed for the green grocers. Grocer Mobile. What was, what was that pun? I'm trying to remember. The Green Grocer's Grocer Mobile is a lobster. It's a giant lobster. Yeah, and my idea for, I think, the title text was if the Green Grocer gets into an accident, he'll have to go to the Red Cross Station. And then parentheses, Red Crustation. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I, I do remember hating that joke. I still love that joke. There was the time we were trying to think of jokes to do with the waiter. Uh huh. I don't remember what it was, but you suggested that he could be in a hurry, and then somebody might describe him as Russian, and I was ready to, to, to punch you. I think we were trying to do something about him being in a hurry, and I said, what if a lot of people from Russia are in the restaurant, and then you immediately vetoed? Yes. Oh, and then they had the competitive camping trip. All right, the last storyline. That was kind of an interesting one. We decided that Sid and Steven would be competing on going camping, like, they had both invited different groups of people to go camping with them, and Stephen was determined to win by doing better at than Sid, something like that. So Sid invites the Unity and Aorist on a camping trip. Oh, and then Stephen wants to start a competing camping trip. But everyone's already going on Sid, so he invites a bunch of minor characters. 
I think he literally refers to them as the B team. No, he says like backup friends assemble. <laughs> <laughs> backup friends sound off. Yeah, he has people like Furniture Store Guy and Panther the Jungle Spirit. A couple checkers who had been extras in a bunch of strips but never named before. That kind of person. Yeah. I am Furniture Store Guy. Occupation? I own a furniture store. Wasn't the title text for that one something about Furniture Store Guy that made no sense? Let me check. What if Furniture Store Guy builds a cannon and shoots the furniture into space? <laughs> was that a reference to something? I don't think it was. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh! It was... We were having trouble scripting at this point. This is where we were clearly in the twilight of the comic. We were both like, oh god, can it be your turn to come up with most of it and I'll just correct some spelling? And like, I was like, no, it needs to be more interesting than that. I kept like trying to get you to suggest more exciting plot lines. <laughs> and you said, what a furniture store guy builds a cannon and shoots the furniture into space. I was like, that's, that's not related to anything we're doing. But it made it into the title text. Yeah, I remember we were scripting that one together around Comic-Con one year, spending forever trying to work it out. Yeah. I liked a lot of the visuals in the camping storyline. I remember doing some bits in the woods that I think turned out well. Yeah. Oh, we also worked my favorite joke that you do in real life into the strip. Somebody's trying to find something, uh -huh. and it is suggested to them that they search in an expanding spiral pattern. Yeah. Which is my favorite thing that you do at the most annoying times. It will work, though. So one time... I was driving and looking for a bus depot to drop Ben off. Uh, or maybe Reed was driving? Yeah, our friend Reed was driving. Now, weren't we picking someone up? Yes, we were trying to pick somebody up from a bus depot. Maybe it was your friend Claire. That sounds right. We were trying to pick her up and we needed to find the bus depot. And this was before everybody had phones with GPS devices and everything. We didn't really know where we were going. Yeah. We are clearly getting lost driving downtown. And Reed, who's driving, is getting frustrated. And Ben, in earnest or half-earnest, the sort of half-earnest that Ben accomplishes in all of his conversations, suggests to Reed that we search in an expanding spiral pattern, which technically would eventually find the bus depot. Yeah. But is like the most annoying thing you could suggest when people are lost while driving. What did we end up doing to find it? Did we just... I think we had directions printed out and we had just gotten separated from like the streets that we needed to be on or something. So we just finally found a major street and worked our way back or something like that. Yeah, but the spiral would have worked. Like, I, I don't see why that's a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, you see why it's impractical, right? I, mean, I guess if it's very far away, the spiral might take a long time. Yeah. We did not wrap up the camping trip storyline. At all. Yeah, we did. Like, Sid and Steven both get stranded there by their respective groups, right? Like, everybody goes home and... No, they see a grocery store on the edge of the forest or whatever. Right, Sid and Steven are out in the wilderness and they both end up at a grocery store. They're starving and... Yeah, wait, before that, we did have one more joke at the expense of the fans. We had Aorist on a blue blanket. There's like two strips in the blue before it's revealed that York painted Aorist's entire room blue and destroyed all of his furniture as a gag. Right, to make him think he was back in the blue afterlife. Yeah. Did we establish if that was how the afterlife just works in Terror Island or if it was Aorist specific? I don't think we established either way. We had a lot of kind of vague cosmology, like the demons yeah. came from demon land or something, which was a red parallel universe. Right on the border between the desert and the forest, there was a grocery store. Which of you bought the groceries first? We both did. How is that possible? Friendship. And that was the end of Terror Island. They both bought the groceries first and the moral was that friendship can make all things possible. And then my final notes, foolishly, made the promise that Ben and I were in the progress of planning our next collaboration. Well, we were. That's true. But it has taken what appears to be... Five years? Yeah, five years for us to actually start our next collaboration. Unless you count all of the things that we started talking about but never made any actual progress on. I count those. Fair enough. Then Ben and I have been collaborating ever since secretly. So I don't think we could retrospect any more than that, really. No, I don't think so. I'll say this in summary, though. There are definitely times, you know, in the intervening five years where I've thought, I kind of wish we pushed through the rough spot and kept it going. Because I did really enjoy doing it, and most of the work was on your end. Just like with the podcast. In case anybody's curious, Ben does all the uh, sound engineering of the podcast, and I mostly do the talking. You also keep track of the requests we have a lot more than I do. True, I copy them into a text file. I mean, you also sort out the ones that look better. I did that at one point, and then I've just been adding all of them to that same file ever since. So that file is just mislabeled now. I, I honestly hadn't realized. So, so that's... I think Terra Island was a pretty good project we did. Yeah. Definitely looking back on it now, it's pretty funny. I'm very glad we did. 
Yeah. And I hope that you, the listener, enjoyed hearing us talk about it. I agree. So until next week, maybe go reread Terror Island. There's some good stuff there, trust me. There's even some good stuff that we didn't talk about explicitly in this episode. All right, tune in next time for what will almost certainly be a shorter episode. RequestCast is powered by the requests of listeners like you. You can send us your requests on the web at podcast.requestcomics.com or visit our forum at timefan.com. 